Greetings and welcome to In Tune with VHBC, a podcast about music and worship at Vestavia Hills Baptist Church. I'm Marty Watts, Minister of Music at VHBC. In today's episode, I'll talk with Becky Atkinson and share about the hymn, And Can It Be? If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss any future episodes. Now let's get in tune. We have previously explored a couple of other Charles Wesley hymns. This hymn, And Can It Be, was written in 1738, after Charles Wesley had had a great spiritual change, or what we might call a conversion experience. Charles Wesley is the 18th child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley, and the brother of John Wesley, founder of Methodism. Charles Wesley is perhaps the greatest hymn writer of all time, and wrote over 6,500 hymns. Our Celebrating Grace hymnal includes 16 of those. In previous podcast episodes, we've explored his hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, and also Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. The text includes a lot of scriptural allusions, including references to Peter and Paul being miraculously released from prison. The last lines of the first stanza are repeated and form the memorable refrain. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This text is almost always paired with the tune Sejina, which was written by Thomas Campbell. Not much is known about Thomas Campbell, other than he was born and died in Sheffield, England, in the 19th century. We do know that he published a book of hymn tunes in 1835 called The Bouquet, which had 23 tunes, each named for a different plant. This tune of Campbell's is the only one still in use today. Sejina the plant is also known as Scottish or Irish moss. Today's episode concludes with the singing of And Can It Be by the congregation of Vestavia Hills Baptist Church, accompanied by the church orchestra and Dr. Beth McGinnis at the organ. If you have a hymn to suggest for a future episode of the podcast, feel free to contact me at marty at vhbc.com. It's hard to believe that there have been... 30 now episodes of this podcast, and uh, I have been so grateful every week to be able to share conversations with folks from our church, and uh, today I'm really glad to welcome Becky Atkinson. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here today. I appreciate you taking time out and uh, chatting with me. It's always nice to talk about yourself. Yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, Becky, why don't you tell us to start off with a little bit about um, what you're involved with at church? Well, um, right now I'm in this most wonderful Sunday school class, Joyful Noise, and um, it's been one of the blessings of my life. And then um, I'm in choir, so that's yeah. about six. Well, I know um, the folks who've shared about their Sunday school classes all have 
good things to say, of course, but the joyful noise folks seem to, to really, um, uh, really enjoy their class. And I, I've talked with a number of other folks on the podcast about, about their Sunday school classes and joyful noise in particular. They are wonderful people. They're smart. They're, um, they, they, they're still learning things, which is really nice because a lot of these folks are retired, but they're all really smart, but they're really interested in learning new things. And I think that's part of what makes it exciting. And they're, they're Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Um, well, tell us a little bit. Um, you mentioned that you're in the choir and uh, sing soprano. Uh, tell us about your, your music background. Um, maybe as a child, musical experiences, and then um, as you come into adulthood and through that. I will. My family was, music was a big part of it because my mother was always the church pianist. Wherever we went, she was the pianist. And she was one of those gospel players. And Uh you watch her on the keyboard, you would see her hands go up. She usually played, even for the hymn, she would play that octave with the third up above. Boom, boom, all up and down the keyboard. She was fabulous. She admitted that she didn't have such a great strength in reading music. And so sometimes we never were in The choirs that I grew up in never sang the kind of music we do. So it was all, you know, sort of at the middle level. And so she could really read most of that music. But sometimes there'd be a piece she really had to lean on a younger person in the choir. to play. But she was very forthright about it. And uh, she was also a singer. She had a lovely alto voice. And so she would pick out these wonderful songs. She loved to sing. Sweet Little Jesus Boy at Christmas, and she sang it, you know. A lot of the people, We this was in Bakersfield, which is right in the middle of the state of California, and a lot of people there had come over during the Dust Bowl. So there were a lot of people who came from Oklahoma and Arkansas. And um, so they, this was sort of, they claimed sort of a southern route, even though they're but, um <laughs> And they really, they loved that. They loved my mother's Southern accent, which I didn't realize she had one. Oh, I'm going off on a tangent. But when I went to college uh, at Pomona College in Southern California, I was, people thought I had a Southern accent at the time. But I knew I didn't because I said greasy, not greasy like my mother did. And my mother never said oil for oil. And, um, Anyway, so even though my parent, dad from Texas, mom from Mississippi, she did not have what I considered a Southern accent. And so I told those folks they'd never really heard one. If they listened <laughs> to movies, so they weren't right. So I did not. Anyway, that was always this little thing. But to go back to my, my growing up, um, I did take eight years of piano, but you wouldn't know it to, to hear me. I'm very rusty and didn't keep up with it. Um, was your mother your teacher? No, no. They paid people to come give me lessons. And they were wonderful ladies. They would come to the house. She tried to teach me, but I don't think I, you know, she was my mom. She didn't want to do that. So I, I had lessons. And I was the only one that really had private lessons or anything. I don't think I had any particular uh, choose 
me that I was born with, but it was just something I started. And then um, my other, the other, there were four of us growing up, and we all, they all joined various bands, and you know, for school, and they learned to play their instruments at school. But I did this, and I was in choir. None of the, uh, my my second sister, the one who's still living, she would be in choir, but um, I was always in girls' choir, and I was. I was counting back. I've been in, and I'm sure a lot of people have, but I've been in six different church choirs. And I'm going to say, this is, these people are happy Christians. In our, I mean, they've had sad things happen to them, but these are happy Christians. And um, I've been in choirs where, I mean, one long time ago, the first church where, Bruce became a Christian the Wednesday before we got married on Saturday. Still one of the greatest miracles that God has given me. And um, so the first church we joined in San Diego was um, a Southern Baptist church, and he decided to come to choir with me. And then after we left the church, we found out that, you know, one of the deacons was having an affair with one of the other ladies in the choir, and, you know, one, you know, all the stuff we didn't even imagine was going on. Um, but there were some folks in that choir who were not happy and they would be resentful of who got solos and all that stuff. And um, every choir had something, every choir I was in had something like that, except for the very first one, this little, when I was in middle school, we joined like the First Baptist Church of Bakersfield, but then there was all this scandal around the preacher whether or not it was true was hotly debated so um, my parents left that church and with others they formed a new church so I had this unique experience of being in a beginning church and our first meetings were in uh, the gym floor of a Seventh-day Adventist school so every morning, my dad was always the Sunday school superintendent. So every morning when he have to go set up all the fold, up, you know, the, the fold up chairs. And we had it in the middle of this huge gym, this little group of us. And even then there was a little choir. And um, I started singing in that. And then um, at some point we were in an old uh, discotheque. I don't know if you're <laughs> Discotheques were quite popular way back then, and um, we would stand on this little platform, about 12 in that choir, would stand on this little corner over here, and so the main, but the main pulpit was here, and um, it was a learning experience in the choir, um, We and we sang cantatas, which we probably shouldn't if we only had 12, um, so anyway. Um, it was, but it was a good experience. Of that choir, I didn't sense it was a happy choir because everybody had chosen to go to that church, and we're putting up with the rough roughness of setting up, taking all that stuff. They wanted to be there, and so that was a happy choir. But then um, after I got married, it just wasn't so great. But uh, with other choirs, I mean, we sang some really cool music, some really nice music. Ken Miedema wrote. Some kind of musical on Moses. Well, that choir did it. And that was an interesting experience. Anyway, so um, the choirs, you know, this one is the happiest one. 
Um, and I, I took piano up till, I'm skipping all around, took piano up until my senior year in high school. And I was had the most embarrassing moment of my life. <clears throat> there was a recital, and I didn't know, but I was the only one of her senior uh, students that she made memorize the music. And it was Chopin, Polonaise and B, which goes boom, ba-boom, 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 and then it has some more lyrical things. Well, I got up there in my fancy, pretty dress, played the bum, 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 and could not for the life of me remember the next <laughs> And I looked at my teacher, and she was mouthing whatever it was, B minor, B, I don't know what it was. I couldn't read her lips. And so I started hoping that it would all, never kicked in. It never kicked in. I was mortified. And um, so I did my little curtsy, went and sat down, and my parents really never said anything. They didn't castigate me or anything, but it just was not spoken of. But it still makes me nervous to perform in front of people. And so, um, but, but. Um, Bruce and I had been in San Diego. He got his PhD, and I was teaching school then, um, eighth grade. And then we moved up to San to Los Angeles. He was teaching at the University of California, I mean, of Southern California. That was when football. Some people would know Marcus. Marcus Allen was quarterback then. Some people will know who that is. We went to all the football games, but anyway. Um, the church there, again, was a small little struggling church. And believe it or not, I played the piano until this one couple came in and the woman was an experienced church pianist and she took over. But she was the one who made me realize when you play a hymn, you don't have to play the whole bass and the whole um, soprano clef, the way it's written. She said, Becky, you just figure out what the chords are, and then there are two patterns. You can go um, octave, boom, boom, for the three, and then if it's a four, four, it's octave, chord, octave, chord. So I thought, my gosh, that must have been what my mother was doing all that time. Um, and I could do that. I could do that. I had to learn the chord stuff, but again, but I could do that. So I was fairly good but I could offer Tories oh my gosh those were terrifying uh, we, we rented a piano so I could practice we didn't have one before there. so anyway. there's no uh, Chopin polonaise for a, an auditorium oh, no, no. nobody got a Chopin polonaise no no nobody got anything fancy except hymns with fancy things that I could so anyway um that was in Los Angeles, in uh, West LA, which is in where around where UCLA is, that area of town. And then we, um, Bruce, uh, got another job over in Florida, and that brought us to the East Coast. And he was a uh, professor of math at the University of Florida. And by that time, I had had our first child, Andrew. We had four, we have four boys, um, my oldest child, and so I was staying home. And I soon found that staying home was harder than teaching eighth grade because um, I was a middle school teacher. And, you know, that's kind of a, it gives you a lot of joy, but it's also kind of thankless because you have to, you have to go with their humor, which is pretty, um, anyway, so, um, 
so then we then we had a second child. I was pregnant with the second child, and we were both in the choir there, and it was a nice experience. And then Claude Ray, who was a musician, I don't know if that, and he was also president of Palm Beach Atlantic College down in West Palm Beach. He visited. He was up in uh, Gainesville for something. And he found out that Bruce was a math professor. And he said, would you ever consider coming down to Palm Beach Atlantic? And I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm going to have this baby and nobody will know us. Nobody will help me. Nobody will, you know, feeling sorry for myself. And so Bruce was actually thinking about doing this. And I said, I don't know, Bruce. Let's lay, let's lay, let's lay a fleece down. Um, I said, if they will pay all our moving expenses to go down, I'll go. And they did. And they did. And I thought, oh, my. They called my bluff. So we, we moved down there. I had my, my labor started early. And it just happened that that morning, Dr. Ray's wife happened to call me. And she said, Becky. And this was not a close, cl really close uh, community there with the college. And um, she called me and said, Becky, you were on my mind. How are things going? And I said, you would, I said, you're not, we only had one car. Bruce had it. And I said, I think I'm starting late. I think my water just broke. And she came over. She said, call, uh, call Bruce, get him to come home. Because I didn't know anybody to ask to watch my son. The first, our oldest, and so she came and she sat with Andrew the whole time. I mean, and that, I mean, that's a that's a college president and his wife who did not stand on ceremony. They were servants. I didn't know Claude Ray very well, but she was magnificent. Mm. So anyway, um, let's see. So we stayed there. I don't know for a while, and. Um, Oh, one of the people we knew at the church there had his kids go to Samford. And when the math professor at Samford retired, um, we they said they put Bruce's name in the basket and he, he was hired. And um, so we moved up here in 95. And by that time, we had four children, four boys. And um, it was a it was a really it was good for Bruce. It was a good place for him to be. And um, he loved it. He loved the math department. I was still staying at home, but I started working in the Mother's Day out at the church. I go down there and do that for a couple days a week. And then um, the next year, Samford, the College of Ed, um, the lady who's in tar charge of teacher ed called. She says, I understand you have a master's. I said, yes, I have a master's in education. I got it at Stanford University in 1995. And she said, she asked me if I was a supervised student teacher. So I started doing that. And that was my step up into higher ed. And it's been a couple years after that. Um, I thought, well, maybe I'll pursue this and look for a PhD. And Birmingham, I mean, UAB did not offer, I was thinking I would do second, uh, PhD in secondary ed, and UAB didn't have it. So I applied to University of Alabama, and they accepted me. So I started classes in 1997, 
kids were still school age. So there was usually I'd have to if I had morning classes, I'd go up there and I'd have to beat the traffic home to pick them up at school. Or Bruce would do it occasionally, but he was so dedicated. He hated to leave. He didn't leave work till five. He was there every day, eight to five. And it, it was not necessarily required that he be there, but he was every day. He was very dedicated. Uh, he was chairman of the math department, very dedicated. So anyway, um, and that, you know, I continued working on that and I continued work. Sanford kept asking me to teach more classes as an adjunct. And I did. It was uh, learning, you know, and I loved doing it. I loved the students. Um, and eventually, I got my PhD in 2005. And Sanford hired me full-time, tenure track. And I was there for two years. But then a colleague at UA, a woman who was on my dissertation committee, asked me to apply to a job that had just come open there. So I did not, but usually, you know, universities don't hire people from their own. And I, I told her that and she said, but this is a different program, different department, because my degree is in educational research. And this was in the foundations, which is philosophy and history stuff. And they hired me in 2007. And I've, I've never been as happy in a working situation as I am there. I mean, I just have wonderful colleagues. They're very smart. All of them have published books, not me. I'm not there. And so they're very well-read. They're really intellectually brilliant and critical. Um, and they're also very kind. And that's that makes a big difference. What, um, what kind of classes do you teach now? Well, I teach what we call foundations classes, which are like philosophy, and uh, one of the classes I teach, a relatively new class, is it's, it's philosophy, the introduction to the philosophy of science. And all science, all research has philosophical foundations for what it believes knowledge is, how you acquire knowledge, or how you create knowledge, and then what knowledge is valuable. Some knowledge is not seen as valuable as other knowledges. And so I love teaching that class because it's a lot of theory, a lot of abstract stuff. And I love doing that. I teach that for both our regular education students. And I also teach it. We, we are the, um, we offer a EDD, which is educational degree. It's a doctorate in for nurse educators. And so I also work in our nurse educator program and I teach some of their education classes. So the other classes I teach for them are the qualitative research. So I, which is fits in right in with my degree. So I teach qualitative research where we talk a lot about theory. How do you frame a research question and what do you really want to know and how will you get it and what what sort of philosophical framework are you going to use to study this problem? And I love working with the nurses because most of them are mature adults and they have the greatest stories about what happens in the hospitals. And they have a big critique of the medical field and they have a critique of hospitals, of physicians based on their experience. And I have found them to be 
the hardest working students. Many of them are working or teaching full time and they're working on this doctorate. And so it's an amazing amount of effort and time they give to this. And I totally respect that. Mm. So, um, You mentioned a little bit about your husband, Bruce, who I'm sorry to say that I did not have the privilege of meeting, um, but your husband, Bruce, um, and your children. Tell us a little bit about uh, the rest of your family. Okay. I have four boys. Uh, Their ages range from almost 40 to almost 30. I mean, about every two years. And um, they were wonderful. I mean, I loved ha- loved being with them. There were times I was frustrated and tired with them, of course. Um, and But th- I'm so proud of the men they have grown into. They all have integrity, every one of them. And um, they're making beautiful, they, they've created some beautiful families. My youngest is not married yet. The other three are. My oldest got his bachelor's in, um, he was never that fond of school. He was sort of a disaffected kid. And um, he didn't understand why he had to take some. He was the one who said, well, I have to take these history classes. You know, and I really couldn't justify something, tell you the truth. <laughs> anyway, um, so he got his bachelor's in psychology and doesn't really want to do anything with it. So he works at a some kind of paper processing um, corporation in home where they, they do stuff with paper that's got some flaws in it. And they design like food quality paper, like for the but- when you buy butter and it's in a box or little Debbie's things, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then my next son got his PhD in electrical engineering and he's in Austin. My oldest son is married to a woman and he is stepfather to her daughter um, who's in her 20s. And then um, my next one, Nick, oldest is named Andrew. The next one's named Nicholas. We call him Nick. And he's married to um, Stephanie. And Stephanie, they met in Nashville. He was in Van- at Vanderbilt. And she was going to Belmont. And she's a graphic designer, very artistic. And he was this engineer guy. They both were working at Panera while they were, and that's where they met. And they got married shortly after he graduated. And they have no children. They're have they're having a grand time in Austin. They're both musicians. He writes music. He's in a band. He they he's acquired a lot of musical stuff so he can produce it. And they've got some of those. <clears throat> online albums you can put out there and she's a lovely singer she can her has a real high float you know one of those floaty soprano voices not like i have she's got a nice floaty one um so and they bring me great joy and um then my third son is scott and his wife Haley. they met both met at vanderbilt they were cheerleaders at vanderbilt and that's how they met and um uh, they got married shortly. No, he went to graduate school at the University of Virginia, and she she got her master's degree at Harvard in special ed reading. So and when she got that, she moved to Charlottesville, and she taught school while he, uh, they were not married. She had her own place, and they, they dated, and he was getting his doctorate in math, and he did, and 
he's been in um, a postdoc at Vanderbilt, and then he left that one to go to Riverside, UC Riverside, and he's a visiting professor. And they have not been very happy out there. Um, they miss black. Haley's black. They miss black people. You know, they're they're, you know, they miss that the richness of that culture, and uh, they miss that. And so um, they have my two grandchildren, my two brilliant, wonderful, the very <laughs> best grandchildren, um, and. Um, and she has started doing part-time work, but it was very expensive out there. They don't pay visiting professors very much. And um, and they want to get back east where all their family is. And that's where he and I have had some interesting discussion. Because when I was when we were in that position, when I was looking for jobs after I got my doctorate, before Sanford offered me a job, I was applying everywhere. I remember waking Bruce up in the middle of the night and said, I'm sending an application to the University of Minnesota. Is that okay with you? And he sat up and said, Minnesota? <laughs> and he said, yeah, okay. We just had decided that for, I could pursue that. We would, you know, we would deal with it. Well, and he is not of that persuasion. He says, Mom, I'm choosing quality of life over career, you know, over just giving anything to be in academia. So he's been taking this data science boot camp and he's finished it. So he's moving into the data science field, which with his PhD in math, he'll be able to find a place out on the East Coast somewhere. We're praying. And I've been telling him, I said, God's preparing a place. Um, it's too bad he won't send you a telegram or anything, but he is preparing a place. And so walking with him, with them and praying for all my kids, but I pray for them because, you know, they've had to make some difficult decisions. They're not happy with the schools in Riverside either. So that's the other reason they're moving back. Um, hopefully, I'm sure they will. And then my youngest son is uh, got his PhD in physics and he has a postdoc in Vancouver which I haven't been able to visit yet because of COVID and all that. But he, but they kind of closed down their offices and told them, just do your work at home. Well, he said, all right. And he's staying with his girlfriend in St. Louis. And, um, and he's doing all his work. She's working on a PhD in marine biology. And they are just so made for each other. But, you know, we're not, not talking about the future yet. Um, and, but they have two big dogs that I just adore. One's a German Shepherd and one is a Beagle. And um, I love visiting them. Anyway, and they, all my boys cook. They all cook. Mac loves to cook biscuit. He will make biscuits from scratch. He'll make pizza crusts from scratch. And Nick is the, the cook for their family. But the, then the other two, Nick and Scott, my youngest one's Mac, short for McKenzie. And Nick and Scott love to cook and um, they will do things for, you know, uh, Nick's wife is gluten-free. So he's adapted all kinds of stuff that, and the, for them. And Scott's wife has had some reflux issues that they've nailed down to dairy. And so they've had to do this non-dairy alternative for everything. And 
when he told me that he made chocolate chip cookies with vegan butter, I said, never, never, never. <laughs> well, they all cook, and I, I'm, of course, thrilled with that. Um, I'm very, they're just wonderful. I see the, the families they're created, and I see what Scott and Haley are doing with their children, and I'm just remarkable. It, I'm re- I find it remarkable. I mean, they do a lot of things. They're not making the same mistakes I do. You know, I, I poor, but then they, but all my kids say, whenever I start talking like that and apologizing for whatever thing, I, they all go, mom, look at us. You were, they all say they had the, per- Bruce and I never fought. We never fought. And I used to think there was something wrong with us because, you know, you hear about couples arguing or fighting. Every time that I would try to pick an argument, Bruce would say, I don't know what you're upset about. So then, I mean, if you can't get somebody to see what your angle is, it's useless. But the kids remember that. They say, Mom, you guys never fought. Um, And I said, well, that's good. You know, one of us was always trying to please the other. So um, I feel good, really good about that with raising the kids. Anyway, I just feel like I didn't read enough books to them or didn't play with them enough, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you, you sound like a very proud mother and you should be. Yeah. Well, thank you. They are wonderful men. Um, each week on the uh, podcast, I ask the same question at the end of our conversation. So Becky, I'll ask you, What's bringing you life these days? Um, the second half of the verse, John 10, 10 says, uh, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So, Becky, tell us what's bringing you life. Well, I'm going to tell you, um, I have bird feeders in my backyard. And I love, and I have a big picture window in my kitchen and a big table. That's where I do a lot of reading for my courses. And that's where I do a little bit of writing. And that's just where I sit, um, breakfast and lunch generally, and I watch the birds, and and I'm just, I just remark, and you know, Jesus said, behold the flowers of the field and the birds of the air and all that, and I always just go, oh yeah, you know, we're supposed to trust, you know, but when I look at them and I realize that they fly whole day, and they don't know where they're going to eat. They really don't. Um, and I just remark at that. And um, I watch them. They're the most vulnerable. They are so vulnerable. But yet they're, you know, they just have that little bright beady eyes and go about their business. And so I love uh, doing my feeders and just watching the birds. And on my phone, there's a little app called Seek, S-E-E-K. And if you hold it over a plant or an animal, it will tell you what it is. And I get great joy out of identifying the birds that way. Um, but then the other thing is, um, when Gary gave us the list of reading the Gospels and the Psalms, I've never really read that, gone through the Psalms. Some people have done that. But on um, it's three lines, Becky. Um, Psalm 42.8 says... Uh, by day, his love directs me. In the night, his music is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. 
And I learned that and I've been saying it every morning uh, when I wake up. And it is just, it just expresses so much of at least my relationship with God, how I feel that. And um, yeah. Uh, folks will probably recognize the, the first verse of Psalm 42, where um, it's, uh, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul pants for you, my God. And then that verse, uh, as you mentioned, comes later. That's a, I love that. And I, I do think there will be a fair number of listeners who, for whom uh, your observation of the birds and sort of um, your connection with them will resonate. Uh, lots of folks, I think, will. Anyway, and then the other thing that I do is I listen to audiobooks. Um, I walk at the, at the my Hoover Rec every day and I listen to audiobooks. And if I'm while fixing dinner, I listen to audiobooks. And it's just that has really, I don't, part of it I finally figured out is having some sound. I'm not one of those that turns, keeps the TV on all day. Some people, Bruce, Bruce when he would come home, he always turned music on. First thing he did. That's the other thing. Bruce gave us music in our family. He gave us music. He was, he played the guitar and um, he always had music going, some kind of music. And when he would give the kids baths when they were little, he would do a little name that tune with them on children's songs. And he'd say, okay, now I'm going to hum or I'm going to, not going to say any words. I'm going to hum and you tell me what song it is. And he, he brought that to us. And really good French toast. The best. According <laughs> to my kids. <laughs> anyway, so uh, those are those are the things. There's, you know, I um, I'm fishing around for a new one, but I love British mysteries. I just the Brits do it best. And um, I was I love a show called New Tricks. And maybe it's because of my age, but it's they. The plot is that they wanted to form this detective team that would look at cold cases. And they they pulled in some guys from retirement. And, and they did all the kind of nasty old police tricks, but they make it kind of funny. And then their boss is a young, attractive blonde. And the I like that kind of ensemble sort of thing where the relationship develops. I watched every single episode and there was, you know, chuckling even with a bloody mystery or something, there was still some chuckling. And I really, really enjoyed that. So I'm fishing around for the one that I enjoy as much and have not found a good one. So. <laughs> well, Becky, this has been such a wonderful conversation to get to hear about your work and your music background and um, uh, your family. And uh, I just so appreciate you opening up and sharing with us. Well, I appreciate you, Marty. You've brought life and joy. Sometimes um, it looks like you're just going to dance sometimes when you're directing. <laughs> and I love you. Well, I thank you. I just being with the choir. I really do. Yes, yes. Soon, hopefully, we'll be, be able to get back to some of the those things again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, take care, Becky. I will. You too.
Subscribing to this podcast makes it easy to find new episodes. This episode concludes with the singing of And Can It Be.